0: caution learning in progress
1: hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of smarter every season i'm your host nate burnham and today we're going to take a little bit of a turn and we're actually going to talk about the history of precision planting So back when we did our cooler giveaway, the idea behind it was we want to get as many ideas for upcoming episodes as possible. One of those ideas was more about the history of precision planting. So we actually put together, with the help of one of our marketing interns, Tim Rice. He put together a podcast that was all about the history of precision planting, and it was a conversation between Wendy Ulrich and Doug Wiegand. Doug has a lot of experience here at Precision. He's been with us. Uh, for a very long time. And so he had a great, a lot of great insight in in how the company has grown over the years. So what we're going to do is we're actually just going to roll that podcast. It was intentionally intended, maybe just for like new hires as they come on to kind of get some some background on precision planting. But with the request of learning more about precision planting, we thought it'd be a great time to roll it. I do want to note that we are still very interested in getting feedback, show ideas, what you like, what you don't like, things that you think would make the podcast better. We still want all those ideas. So don't hesitate to send us an email at smartereveryseason@precisionplanting.com. at PrecisionPlanting.com. Without further ado, we are going to go ahead and listen to that interview.
0: Welcome to the history of precision planting, where we will explore the hard work, determination and passion that led to the creation of this innovative company. Precision Planting revolves around a team that is dedicated to empowering farmers by taking a unique approach, refusing to settle for what already has been done. At the heart of Precision Planting is Doug Wiegand, who now serves as the Director of North American Sales and was one of the visionary founders whose unwavering commitment helped lay the very foundation Precision stands on today. Join us as we talk about Precision Planting's profound impact on
2: farmers all over the world.
3: Doug, tell us about how you got started with Greg here at Precision Planning.
2: So I knew Greg Souter because our, our family ran a fertilizer business, um, which is currently Sun Ag on Allentown Road. That was Wegan Fertilizer for 18 years. And so we served uh, Greg as one of our customers and his dad Earl and, and Ken Souter, who works here, and his dad Bob. Uh, were, were farmers in the community that, that, mm-hmm. that we serviced. And so Greg had reached out to me. I'd left a, a cabinet shop that I was working at and uh, wanted us to come, me and actually my brother Brad at the same time, wanted us to come talk with him. This, was, this would have been about October of o three. Greg kept reaching out to us about every week or two and wanted to meet with us again and wanted to talk again. And over about four times, we finally made the decision to give it a try. We started December one. Of 03.
3: What did the business look like at that point? You, you said in that first meeting with him, you talked for quite a while, and he kind of explained where the company was and what his vision was. What did, what did the company look like at that point?
2: With me and Brad, when we started, we were number 14 and number 15 full-time okay. employees. But that also included Kurt Bolliger, and There was three or four guys that were also part of the farm. So if you reduced them out, they were kind of like part-time precision and, and primarily farm. But they would, they would work both ways. There was probably more like 10, 11 of us, right, that were, that were full-time precision planning. So mm-hmm. there was another guy that was hired a month before me. He was the first guy that was ever really hired just to focus on sales and product support. He w- he started 1st November. I started 1st December. We were the farm show. We were the event managers. We were product support. We were sales and everything else, right? So there was engineering and there was us. There were two engineers, Chad Plattner, Derek Souter. Brad Stoller had been hired earlier that year. He was procurement, working with engineering.
3: So the company was founded in 93. It started with Keaton's. A lot of people know that about Precision's. But by 2003, 10 years later, Precision had Keaton's and finger meters.
2: Yeah, so the spring of 2003 was the very first year that Precision had a complete finger meter. Prior to that, they made an ashtray for the fingers. That's it. Yes. So they made the decision to go all in. And build an entire finger meter. So, 2003. Then, when that meter went to the field, they had three different inserts in the in the Pop Max plate that you could put in: R, U, and F. Rounds, universal, and flat. That's what that stood for. And so, what they would do is they recommended that if you ran flat, you'd take the R insert out and screw the F insert in. I'm guessing not
3: many farmers did that.
2: Not many farmers did that. And so, when everything was right, it outperformed the John Deere and the Kinsey meter. If you got it wrong, it could have (laughs) lost. (laughs) matter of fact, I remember Ken Ferry did a research article for Farm Journal on those meters. When he showed in there that when the combination was wrong, it actually lost yield. When it was right, it gained yield. So we came in December, a lot of work. It was a flurry around here to get the meter better. We would bring in, Brad Stoller would run around with engineering, uh, Derek Souter, Jeremy Zobris worked here at the time. And those guys was working umpteen hours. And they just kept Kenny Dill in the meter room Brad, my brother Brad, worked with engineering and in the meter room at that time, and and, and they put me on the sales side. When we bring in a a batch of fingers, they would run 39 different seed sizes and and shapes different treatments they would run three 1,000 seed runs with every seed on that finger set on that new ashtray on that new mm-hmm. cam before they'd bless that finger many times we'd bring a set of fingers in and they'd scrap them so
3: how are they verifying the performance at that point
2: they would run across a bigger broader range of seed than we ever do today like,
3: like with uh they didn't have the 2020
2: no they had what, a meter max test like? stand
3: it was the original meter max
2: testing no no, no. You know, in 2002 they designed the autopilot computer that's when chad started okay chad planner okay and and one of his first projects uh, i believe was to to work to Put a computer on the test stand. Okay. So it had the MeterMax test stand. It gave you Singulation and SRI, just like we have on the 2020 today. Matter of fact, the, the software algorithms that were put into the 2020 in 2007 in the beta year, those came from the autopilot test stand. So yeah. we were analyzing meters one row at a time through sensors on population, SRI, which is spacing, mm-hmm. and Singulation in 2002. That same software is what debuted on a planner commercially in 2008.
3: How did you get from meters? to the 2020.
2: One step at a time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: yeah, and so early days there'd be a whiteboard in in R&D. They'd have 20 things written on it and we would look at that whiteboard and we ask ourselves is somebody else already doing it? And if they are, can we make it better and what's the return to the customer? So we wanted our goal was that if we started to research, if the engineers were going to work on something, we wanted it to return the customer 10x what it cost in its life. If, if a customer wrote a $1,000 check, we wanted him to make $10,000 return. And we didn't want to do anything that was me too. If somebody else had already designed something and we couldn't make an improvement or an improvement that would return the customer, we said, It's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. We did not ever focus on waste of time. We didn't do things so that we could sell them. We did things so that we could drive a return on the agronomic value to the customer.
3: What type of building were you guys working out of at that
2: point? We were in building one, 86 by 200. Building two was 86 by 200, but about three quarters of that was farm shop for the farm. They had equipment in there. We sold two the Max Harrels and, and built them in there at that time. And about 30% of that building was R&D. R&D was Derek Souter, Chad Plattner, Donnie Dunlap, who was a retired tool and die maker that worked in the shop. Brad Stoller. And then when Brad Weekend started, he worked there along with Kenny Dill in the meter room. So
3: you and one other person were sales. What did your day-to-day job look like?
2: Day one, I, I showed up I jumped in the truck with Kurt Bolger. We drove to Peoria Farm Show, and I helped him set the booth up. <laughs> Day two, three, and four, I worked the booth. That was the first week of December. December 15th was Indianapolis Farm Show. They wanted me in charge of setting up, tearing down, organizing everything on farm shows. So two weeks later, I drove to Indianapolis, and I set it up myself. And then two guys showed up on the backside, and then we reached out to a few dealers, and we worked the show all, all three days from 2003 until summer of 2007. I set up, tore down, and worked every farm show that we did.
3: What did the dealer network like, look like? You mentioned that you had a couple dealers there.
2: When I started, there were about 330 dealers. A dealer back then, a test stand was $7,700. A cleaning table was 900 So, okay. if, So if you bought both, it was $8,600. You basically calibrated meters, and a lot of them were charging about 25 bucks a meter. If you sold a 12-row planter's worth of repower kits, where you took their John Deere or Kenzie meters and sold 100% precision parts is 100 bucks a row. So that dealer sold $1,200 worth of product on a 12-row planner that took him 30 to 45 minutes per meter to do. So was there a lot of money in it? No. Uh, $1,200, if he made 20%, he made $240 margin on that whole planner on parts. So why would they be a dealer? The dealers that became dealers at that point did it because they wanted to help their customers mm-hmm. do a better job. That's a thread that we still look for today. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want the guy that wants to make a bunch of money.
3: We didn't do things for a me too. Right. We did it because it would make a difference to the customer. It's just, it's really cool to be seeing how, like, that same thread of why we do what we do has been there with the company, with the dealers as well.
2: Dealers that we look for were willing to go against. status quo you see John Deere and Kinsey and OEMs you know use them as an example they both had finger meters but OEMs had set a status quo and we didn't want to just go sell we wanted to teach we didn't want you to buy our product we wanted to we wanted to make sure we empowered you to get the most out of that product precision planning was more driven by agronomic value than any other part of the business Mm -hmm. A lot of companies are driven by marketing or maybe product support or maybe sales or maybe the finance guy. Yeah, we need to make some money. Precision planning engineering is driven by agronomy most of what we've done we've built our own market it did not exist very few people were calibrating meters back in those days
3: yeah i was wondering that so we had a test stand but how did oems well
2: john deere had uh, si test stands okay and and they just read it through a sensor coming down it was basically population kinsey had a test stand big john had a test stand we would do a side by side we would analyze a meter better than anybody
3: my understanding is singulation is something precision created right yeah
2: that was kind of a word if you look in the Dictionary doesn't exist, so we defined yeah. it. Our test stand did a better job of analyzing. Matter of fact, I would I would have guys that uh, owned a Big John or an SI test stand or another mm-hmm. test stand, and I would challenge them to calibrate a meter as best as they could do it, and then bring it to precision planning Come to a meter max training. Bring the meter that you th- say is ready to go to the field, and I want you to bring the seed that you calibrated it with. Mm-hmm. They'd bring it in. They'd take it into the meter room. Uncle Kenny would take that meter, he'd throw it on the test stand, he'd put that seed in it, and he'd say, all right, here's where it's planting, 96%. Then he'd take and he'd replace one part at a time. And then he'd torque it down and he'd run it. And what they saw was that every part improved it. And by the time they were done, they were ready to buy a meter max test stand.
3: I'm sure that's pretty powerful. We didn't
2: sell it, we proved it.
3: And, and so that's what I think like the 2020 essentially is doing for customers in a sense. But the 2020 gives you the lens, the visibility to be able to see what's
2: going on. It measures it. Yes. Okay, so the test stand measures it. If I gave you a meter and you put it on a motor and it was spinning 15 seeds per second out of it, would you be able to tell me what singulation is?
3: <laughs> not by just watching it uh, myself. So you
2: have to have the software, not just sensors, but the software to be able to, to measure it. Yeah. Until right? you can properly analyze it. You'll never know how bad it or how good it is. Yeah. So Kenny Dill said that prior to putting the autopilot computer on the test stand, he believed the meters that he was sending out were ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent. Once they designed the autopilot and put it on there, he said I had some crow to eat. <laughs> he said yeah. they were actually a ninety-six to ninety-seven yeah. percent meter. He said what I thought was at ninety-nine was really at ninety-six. Once they realized it was ninety-six, that's when the innovation started. Yeah, that's when they bought the high-speed camera. That's when they started to try to figure out where are the errors happening. You see, if they're not happening, I'm blind. Precision planning engineers have figured out how to measure. Measurement is better than a thousand opinions. Derek Sauter used to say that all the time. Measurement is better than a thousand opinions. Downforce. Everybody had an opinion, yeah. but once we put a load pin on there, yeah. now it's not an opinion anymore. It is what it is. Now you have something where you know what the variable is, you know where the variabilities is, and so now you design something to solve it. What it did is it analyzed everything, more so than anything that ever been on a planner. Nothing had ever measured singulation and spacing down to a millisecond of time. Nothing had ever measured the, the downforce carried and the variations that happen on a gauge wheel
3: so how did you jump from the meter market into downforce because we
2: worked with ken ferry and he always coached us managing downforce so we used to teach on managing downforce Mm -hmm. managing residue managing all this stuff Mm way before we come out with 2020 it was in our dna delta force didn't teach us about downforce yeah. our knowledge of understanding the value of not compacting and getting depth consistency right was mm-hmm. critical that's why when we came out with a load pin it wasn't a stab in the dark it wasn't just a bright idea that come out of the out of nowhere we we knew that managing downforce was critical depth consistency the agronomy is the one that led the path. We didn't want to do me too because that really isn't innovation. If you design a wheel and I go pay an engineer to design a wheel, isn't that wasting time? It's already designed. Why would I pay an engineer to design it again? We're trying to solve problems that haven't ever been solved. That's the heart of this company. When I went out into the field working with dealers and customers, same thing. I didn't just want to sell them. No, I wanted to figure out how do we help them? Yeah. How do we make it bigger? How do we take them from 180 to 220 bushel? Not how do I sell something? Yeah. If I can can get them to return, it's going to fuel the fire. I started in 2003 and 2007. Uh, That year we beta tested 65 2020s across North America. Alan Williamson in the state of Washington ran a 24-row. Brand new John Deere planter or newer. He had a 2020, and I forget the guy's name, but we had a four-row John Deere 7,000 in the state of Virginia nice. that ran a 2020, and it was no-till. Almost everybody that were conventional till, they were applying too much weight. They were compacting. Everybody in no-till wasn't applying enough. Matter of fact, many times, planters didn't have the capabilities to apply enough to keep it in the ground. I had entire farms that never got 100% ground Yeah, contact. I
3: know. We've seen that conversation of adding weight to the bar. Yeah, yeah
2: so... so and in, in prior to the 2020, from 03 to 08, every year, once planting and corn would emerge, once you sold a meter to that guy, if there was any problems with the stand, they'd call you yeah, It was your fault. Why? Because yeah. you're the one that they bought a yeah. meter from, right? And so yeah. I would travel around this country, multiple farms, diagnosing a troubleshoot in the field on the planter what was wrong. I had to figure it out.
3: So there's five years there. When did the idea of the 2020 start coming about
2: in 2006 I remember one day I walked into John Larkin's office and I said John I just I come up with an idea we need to take the autopilot computer and put it on the planner and you know what John said he smiled and he said the engineers are working on that right now they had just started working on it the same idea so we were looking at one row let's well, let's look at 36 right yeah. let's do the same thing on 36 if we gave the customer that type of knowledge real time he could manage and he could elevate the performance, right? And that yeah. was just on singulation spacing population. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, when we went in there with a load pin and, and a row unit ride sensor, that all of a sudden connected more variables, more dots, and really gave us the ability to dial in a planner's capabilities beyond what we could ever do without those mm-hmm. sensors.
3: So what was it like being part of that? market disruption, bringing something as revolutionary as that to the market.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty neat. I remember doing a meeting up in Michigan at Cabela's for Wilbur Ellis. They had a mm-hmm. seed kickoff meeting. They asked me to come in there, and the, the area manager w- wanted me to offer a dealership to uh, to the 11 locations that he managed, to anybody that would be interested, because he really saw a lot of value in it. And I get done, and I'm, I'm leaving. I maybe 30 minutes and there was a guy there that worked for Wilbur Ellis and he had worked in commercial sales wholesale sales for Wilbur Ellis for 25 years and he calls me up as I'm 30 minutes away and he is just excited as anybody you've ever seen (laughs) and he said Doug because I had just shared with them the 2020 right Mm -hmm. and I was all passionate about it and excited so they were pretty jacked up and he said Doug he said what you guys have a hold of is like a color TV. And everything else was black and white. He said, that's a game changer. He said, it is going to change the entire thing. He said, what you guys have here is incredible. And so I would tell customers, and they probably thought it was pretty, um, maybe a little cocky. But I would say, someday you'll own a 2020. It may not say 2020, but someday you're going to own a 2020. And once you do, you'll never go without it. And what I meant by that is, eventually... Everybody else will adapt to who, where we are. It's not going back. Within three years, John Deere had it. And then next thing you know, Ag Leader had it. And then Kinsey had it. Everybody had it, right? So what we did is we, we changed the status quo. And once we did it and a farmer ran it, he would never go without it. There would be guys that would come to me after that first year that he says, "I, you can have my planter, you can have my tractor, you can have my dog, but you are not taking my 2020. Instantly, that customer realized that he could do a better job. And he did do a better job running the planner, even if there wasn't something broke, just managing that planner, right? Yeah, it changed the status quo. You know, but it started with a lot of understanding of the planner and of the meter before the 2020 ever Mm -hmm. come along.
3: Yeah, I I was looking, I I put together like a timeline of precision and the products we came out of. And I, I know a lot of us have seen how exponentially our product line increases. But that first 10 years, there's quite a bit of distance without many products. But what I'm seeing now is it wasn't wasted time and not that I assumed it is, but we needed that foundation. We needed the experience in the planner market and understanding row units and downforce and meters before we could launch yeah, such if you,
2: products. Yeah. If you would race that knowledge, you'd never have the products. The yeah. products are the result of the understanding. It's not the other way. You don't understand because you designed a product. The understanding is what helps to develop. So you, you have to build your foundation of knowledge first. It's not that easy. It no. takes a lot of work and a lot of hours and a lot of effort, right? And so early days when I started, I remember a month after being here and we were a small company right, 15 of us, and there there were no benefits, no insurance, no 401k, no pickup trucks, no credit cards, (laughs) had an Nextel flip phone or an office (laughs) computer, didn't even have a laptop. I'm traveling all over the world and I don't have a laptop. And so I pushed to connect Nextel and a box of files with people's contact in in there. And and that's just how you do what you have to to do to get to the next level. Do
3: you have any thoughts on or advice on how we should be approaching Some of these newer markets for precision.
2: Yeah, I mean, when I look at Cedars and sprayers is coming on, radicals coming on. Launching those will actually be easier than it was a finger meter. Why so? Because we do have brand Mm -hmm. recognition, believe it or not. I went to Kansas City Farm Show the first year, and 9 out of 10 people I talked to had never heard of precision planting in their life. And then when they'd see the Keaton Seed Firmware, most people thought we were a distributor for a Keaton Seed Firmware. They didn't know it was our product. We had 330 dealers when I started because Pioneer had sold the bulk of those test stands. So precision planting had an exclusive with Pioneer. Pioneer guaranteed that they would buy so many test stands a year. Greg Souter agreed he would not set up one dealer. Part of the exclusive was Precision Planning could not set up a dealer. Only Pioneer could. But they guaranteed so many test stands a year. So they went out and they placed test stands with their seed dealers. And then those seed dealers would come to Tremont to Precision Planning to get trained. Back in them days, Kenny Dill would do an entire day of training in the meter room. And Greg Souter would do an entire day of training in the classroom. What was
3: pioneers approach your strategy behind that just benefiting the customer
2: how do we help to make sure that the seed we're selling is planting better hmm. it's a great strategy you know why you out the competition not just with genetics yeah. right. but with management so Makes they sense. went to their dealers and what pioneer did is they did research and they showed over three years that the pioneer dealer that had a test stand sales grew 14 percent more than the pioneer precision planning had not sold them. Early days, Greg Satter went out and sold a handful of test stands. Not a lot. Almost all of those 330 dealers were Pioneer dealers. So that Pioneer exclusive had ended about a year before I started. That year before I started, I think they sold 15 or 17 test stands. I started in December. The first six months, me and Myron sold 26 test stands, set up 26-meter <laughs> max dealers. We set up 20 parts dealers. We set up 22 the max dealers. So that was really the first approach to going out and finding dealers that weren't the Pioneer exclusive was over, so therefore you could sign up any brand. I wasn't looking for a brand. I wasn't looking for how big your building was. I was looking for the person that wanted to help their customers become better.
3: And that's what we still look for now.
2: Always. Who we're looking for, I you know, I'll tell guys, yeah, back then if they'd have seventy seven hundred dollars and if they could write a check for seventy seven hundred and could fog a mirror, I'd sell them a test hand. But the reality is this, we were always looking, I was always looking for that disruptor. For not just a disruptor, but a person that also was a servant heart. They, they did it because they liked helping others get better. That was their drive. The ones that didn't have that drive, it washed out. The ones that did are still here today.
3: That's a pretty important piece of how we approach the cedar market, the sprayer market, radical agronomics. Are there any other strategies? or?
2: A lot of people think, well, you just go sign a dealer up and they'll sell it. You know, I... I never have sat down and ever counted, but I've signed up somewhere between 200 and 250 dealers in my years here. 20 years, that ain't that many per year, but, I, but, you know, a lot of them early on. Signing a dealer up is pretty easy. Getting them to do something. And then getting them to do it in a way that helps develop the customer that takes a lot of work you can't just write a, an outline or an onboarding and it just happens my desires can't be your desires you yeah. have to desire it so you got to find it you had to develop a dealer to go do something but yet you weren't their boss a lot of work to develop that dealer and as we've grown it becomes yeah. hard once we come out with 2020 and then air force and row flow, I, I would i would have some people call me and say hey i want to be a dealer But I I don't want to buy the meter max stand and do meters. I just want to do the technology. And I would say, nope, (laughs) that's not an option. You know why? I don't want the customer to get a third of the value. You need to know the mechanics, the meter, to be valuable for the customer. This ain't about you making money. This is about the customer. There's danger in specialization. There's efficiency, but there's also danger in it. The danger is you're really good down one path, but you can't connect the dots to anything else. Well, if you can't connect the dots to other things, how valuable are you for the customer? Your value lessens. Yeah. So as a company, that's the risk as we get bigger and bigger. We've got
3: to keep our eyes on our original goal and our end goal, which is value to the customer. So SRM product launch... V-Drive, Delta Force. What did that look like?
2: We came out in 2020 and 08. Commercially, in 2009, we came out with Air Force. As soon as we came out with Air Force, that spring, there were four region managers. We had went from two to four.
3: Were you a region manager at that point?
2: I started off in sales in July 1 of 2006. Greg had asked me if I would start a standalone product support department. So I did that for a year. I went through all of the install instructions. That year we came out with ESAT. That year we came out with Surefire Belt. Came out with Bullseye Seed Tube. Those are big products. Uh, And then I went through all the library of historical stuff and I completely redid every one of them. I also worked all the farm shows that year with the three new region manager leads. After a year, they had me step back in. One of the region managers wasn't quite doing what they wanted. They asked me if I'd step back into the region manager. So I did. I I stepped in as a region manager of the eastern third of the U.S.
3: Who uh, took over the product support department at that time?
2: My brother Brad oh, was in right. engineering and he stepped in. Uh, they moved him from engineering tech, kind of testing with, with engineers into product support. I believe that first year it was Brad, Mike Schlitt, Dave Robinson were full-time product support. And then Kenny Dill, Roger was seasonal, Jim Guth, meter room, So those were all kind of under the product support.
3: Can you talk about some of the other products Precision had? To
2: the Max Harrell. That was driven by the farm. So that would have been in 1999. Ken Ferry convinced Greg he needed to stop running a field cultivator or soil finisher. Because he said it puts a layer in at four or five inches and roots turn on. We need to come in here with an inline ripper, take the layers out, and then when we come in in the spring, don't put another layer in. That roots turn on. So Greg was running a McFarland stalk chopper, tried to get McFarland to beef it up because it wasn't doing much. They wanted something that worked a little bit of soil, but not too deep. Nobody would do it. They didn't didn't move much dirt. There was more residue fluffers, right? So since nobody would do it, Greg decided to do it himself. And so Greg and Ken at that time worked with the farm shop, which is now Premier Fabrication in Congerville, and they designed, tested, iterated to the Max Harrell.
3: How many of those are out there on the market?
2: We would sell 30 to 40 per year. The last year that we had the to the max or last year and a half, Ken Sauter had left, uh, went on kind of a, went to Moody Bible School and took a different job. And they had me manage the Harrows. And so in the fall of 2006, spring of 2007, that winter or that fall winter, we sold the to the max harrow to Landall.
3: Yes, that's right. That's yep. who owns it now.
2: In that transition for that next year, that was the same year that I was product support. I uh, assisted Landall in everything from manual development or the manual writing, the parts department. They had departments where we had me. I went out to Marysville, Kansas. I helped them build the first two, the Max Harrell, just to show the factory, here's how, here's how you build it. I worked with 11 territory managers and did demos out in the field all over the country. They wanted me to teach them vertical tillage it was a 99 to 2007 product at that time it generated some volume some cash it helped to justify a larger farm progress show booth a -hmm. winter conference or a summer conference and it was educational and so in those early days we did a lot of digging of roots i dig a lot of pits and fields i'd analyze roots so i learned a lot about downforce management and root density yeah Before we ever came out with a 2020. That product prepared some of us. The people that didn't experience that are missing a big gap. Downforce management, residue management, closing the furrow, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. That's all vertical density. You know, I've done winter conferences that I've talked on that. And my knowledge is more than brochure. It is a lot of states with a lot of spades and a lot of pits digging and analyzing roots under the ground. There's a depth there that it, it's sad at times for me that we had that pretty ingrained. How do we keep teaching that? That's the challenge. You know, we bring young, new, smart inner energy. How do we not lose the experience?
3: Yeah, so do you have any ideas about that? Do
2: people. You go to people that have experience, they have been there, done that. The Ken Souders, the Marv Wagon Box, the Marla Roses. You want to learn from history. How much does Grandpa teach you? Quite a bit. He might have had an eighth grade education, but he was the wisest person you ever knew. Why? Because he's done it. Doing it will teach you where the books are wrong. And it'll also teach you where the next chapter in that book needs to be written. We've written a lot of those new chapters here at Precision Planning. I'll hear over the time that, well, we got to change. We got to change. You can't be afraid of change. And sometimes if you're resistant to, to an idea, they'll say you're afraid of change. Has nothing to do with it. I've changed more than anybody in the last 20 years. I started with 15 of us, so we are now 500. It was with a To The Max, a Keaton, and a firmer. I learned hydraulics. I learned electronics. I learned the software. I've even learned how to sit in an office versus be out in the (laughs) woodshop, right? And there's times I miss the hands-on stuff, but at the same time, 12 years of being a region manager out in the field, it it put a lot on my family. It takes a lot of hours and days and weeks away from the home. Many times when you're out on the road, you're not putting in eight-hour days. You're putting in 16, 18-hour days, so that way you don't have to put as many days away from home yeah. so you really maximize every every day yeah. you'd be out you just push like crazy so that way you get home and spend more time with your family yeah. yeah so there's a there's a price that's paid in every every position in this company and and there, there's times sometimes we, we lose sight of that or there's times some people don't realize mm-hmm. the price that's paid you know I, I worked in a wood shop where something would happen three departments away and somebody right next to me would know about what happened three departments away five minutes later. We're in the middle of building doors and face frames. Like, how do you know that something just happened, that somebody did something three departments away five minutes ago? Because you're not focused on your job. You're more worried about what others are or aren't doing than you are on what you can apply to the value of the company. That's something we got to maintain. There's times out here, well, so-and-so gets to do this. and I Well, I'm that's dangerous. Man tears culture down. We got to constantly fight against that. Yeah. When, when I say man's weakness, our strength can build it. And that's what we've got to focus on. We've got to unite together to do that. But when we talk about products evolving or the history, there's a lot of foundation that was built. We didn't accidentally come across something. Many times people ask me in the last few years, especially I've been in some economic development councils and in uh, some things like that. And Where people ask me, how has Precision continued to do what it's due for so many years? And I say, one of the biggest reasons we've been able to maintain our growth and our energy and our foundation is employee retention. See, if you can hire the smartest people and they stick here two years and therefore they jump go to the next ladder, go to the next company, go to the next pay raise, what leaves with them?
3: That experience, that Two knowledge. years of
2: knowledge. So you can hire the greatest guy again, smartest guy again. What's he, Where's he going to start when he starts? Back two years ago. If we don't learn from the years and decades around us, we will make the mistakes ourselves. I read a saying once, Eleanor Roosevelt said. She said, you need to learn from as many of other people's mistakes as you can in your life because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. Yep. <laughs> We can be smart, we can be ambitious, uh, we can work hard, but it pains me when I see newer people come in, and it doesn't happen often, but you get glimpses of it, where they think they know a better way, but they didn't go talk to the guy that did it a hundred times. Saddened when I think of Kenny Dill, who, who's gone, or Derek mm-hmm. Souter who's gone. Those guys poured into me mm-hmm. when I started. Ken Souter, I would go into his office all the time and I'd say, Ken, let me ex- explain these roll cleaners to me. This hero, why is it doing this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Can can Souter, can ferry depth, depth and depth of detail, of understanding from them, learn from others around. Them. As we get new employees, what's the key to keep them around to You have lean to on have an notch? environment that's bigger than entitlements. You won't stay for money in a free car. It's not fulfilling. It's gotta yeah. be bigger than that. If or- you go to work every day and you produce more, you're gonna feel really good when you walk away. If you go to work every day and you produce less, you're going to start to not feel valuable. See, me buying you a new jacket doesn't make you feel valuable. makes you feel special, (laughs) but there's no value. It's not about stuff. That doesn't keep you here. You have to get people to work beyond themselves. When they're in it for something bigger than themselves— Then you're going to get more. What I've learned is that if you focus on value of others and you focus on something bigger than yourself and you're focused on building a foundation that others can win, not just you, the money takes care of itself.
3: So how have you helped facilitate that in others?
2: I've often said everybody leads by example. The question is which example (laughs) are they leading by? (laughs) People will do what you do, not what you say. Never ask somebody to do something if you aren't already all in doing it. It's hypocritical. I got to look in the mirror every day on that. Don't ever ask somebody else to go harder than you are. But if you go hard, if you go harder than them, you will inspire them. I've seen that in every walk of life. On the football field, the woodshop, all the way through. Are you that person setting the example? Are you giving more than you take? And, you know, I remember my son was reading a Dave Ramsey book. And he was talking about recruiting and hiring and employees. Dave Ramsey said, I hire givers, not takers. He said, there's two kinds of people. There's people that give more than they take, and there's people that take more than they give. He said, I don't hire takers. I hire givers. You create that environment, and people won't want to leave, ever. I shouldn't say ever. I mean, but I've been here 20 years. I haven't wanted to leave yet. There's been challenges, but you don't take a company from a few million to where we're at, from 15 people to 600 uh, without some challenges and growth, you know, and and dealing with 500 dealers, you know, they all have businesses too. And so you deal with them challenges, them challenges, their problems become your problems. And if they, and if you don't want them to become your problems, you're in the wrong spot. I could do it easily and not burden myself with that. But if, if that's the case, then it's about me and it's not about them. So we, we just lost our way.
3: I want to step back to the timeline here. So You became an RM oh six oh seven oh eight.
2: Yeah, 2007 in the summertime, I I took over the east, everything east of Illinois. We had three of us at that time. There was western, central, and eastern U.S. I had 198 dealers, 21 states, and two provinces. And they wanted us to start to go out. We had sold the to the Max Harrell, so we were out of the tillage business. 2007 summer, we were getting ready to launch 2020. I went out and spent a lot of time with a lot of dealers. Our biggest dealer prior to ESETs finger meters, bullseye. We had some dealers hitting 100,000 in sales, not very many. And that first year of 2020, we really lit the fuse on that. And, And I got quite a few dealers to really take this thing as, look at it all of a sudden now as a, maybe a business, a Mm full-time business, Mm -hmm. instead of a sideline to their existing business. Yeah.
3: So you were an RM for 12 years, you said about? Well, from
2: 2003 to 2012, I was in sales. Part of that, you called me an RM. Part of that, you called me sales. Okay. There was one year I was a product support. So I started in 03. In 2016, I became an RM lead. I did that for three and a half years. August of 2020, I became director of North America sales.
3: So as you stepped out of the RM position and more into leadership? Have you learned new things about precision? It's
2: constantly evolving. And what I've always tried to do is keep your foundational core things. There's some things you don't want to change. Morals and ethics and why, your purpose. Change can throw you into chaos if it's done in the wrong way for the wrong reason. As I stepped into a region manager lead role, for example, I had been a region manager for 12 years. I'd signed up a couple hundred dealers. I had seen more success than anybody else because nobody had been here that long. I had also seen more failure. I had some dealers that did really well, but I also had a whole list of them that didn't do so well. And you learn from that. It's not just the successes. You learn what not to look at, what who not to sign up. Region managers, good guidance. Yeah. Because I didn't just have not very intelligent, but I had more experience, right? Didn't, mm-hmm. d- didn't necessarily have the intelligence, but I had a lot of experience of trial and error. And so I could teach region managers things that I had went through. I could guide them down these paths, product support people that they hadn't gone through. Even though my quote was region manager, I was as ingrained in product support oh, yeah. as, as, as yeah. anybody in the company. Yeah. Many times region managers were, especially back then. I would average a 1,000 hours a year on my cell phone. One spring, during the month of planning, my peak was 14,000 minutes. Many times, spring month, peak month was twelve to 13,000 minutes that month. All products support. That was not sales. How much volume of experience is that? Under fire. A lot. Many times, if you average that out, it, it was 5 or 10x what any person does today. We didn't have as many products, but it was the same thing. Many times it was harder to diagnose in those early days because you didn't have twenty twenty 20 data. You couldn't say, well, what's your singulation? They didn't know. What's your downforce? Yeah. They didn't have that sensor. You're, you're trying to lead a blind man, and you're blind. And so you had to diagnose.
3: Making it through those is how you learn.
2: Well, it's when you follow through on the backside of that and you get that call and then you drive out there and you go to that farm and you go out and you dig and you analyze and you go look at the planter and you figure out what's the problem, what's the cause. It sharpens your knife as a troubleshooter. But that's all there was back then. Yeah, so there's parts of who we were 20 years ago that were the same today. And that's a good thing. We disrupt. We're not in it for the money. It's bigger than us. I remember telling my wife, I don't know if I'm supposed to go work there or not. But it would be neat to work for a company that helps the world grow more food. We're, we're a part of something big here.
1: So I've been here just over a year. It's been a blessing to be a part of an organization that truly cares yeah, and truly wants to see the grower succeed, not just make money. Right. And I forget who it was that I was having a conversation with, but they said, I don't care if we make a sale. What I do care about is even if he doesn't want to buy anything we help him be better with the equipment he has.
2: Yeah, we, we have depth of knowledge in this company, and it's important that, as we talked about, as new people come on, that we learn that, right? I, ju- I just did a North America sales meeting, and there's 28 region managers, and there's seven of them been here less than a year, less less than three years, I guess I should say. And there's also a, a, a batch of them that's been here quite a while, six, six seven-plus years. What are we doing to learn from each other? I created a, a slide that said the smartest person in the room, is the room. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that. We are not the smartest people. If precision planning is going to grow to the next level, I need to be not the weak link, number one. Number two, I need to realize it ain't all about me. It's about the team. Individually, none of us could do what we've done. Together, we can, we can accomplish a, a, a stride only if we're all pushing in the same direction. Only if we are given more than we're taking, givers, not takers. But collectively, we can create a level of horsepower, should be able to, that with a few, couldn't be done.
1: As we kind of finish this out, do you have any fun stories that really depict the culture of precision?
2: You know, my first summer conference, summer conference was the week before Farm Progress Show. My first summer conference, we we were four or five days right here, all in. We had tents set up. We had To the Max's Harrows out doing tillage demonstration. We were doing, picking corn, digging roots, analyzing crops. That was through Friday. We got done. After the summer conference on Friday, we loaded all the tents. We loaded tractors. We loaded planters. We loaded To the Max Harrows onto semis. Six by 11 o'clock. 6 a.m. Saturday morning, Marv Wagenbach, Aaron Baer, myself, Kurt Bolliger, Ken Souter, Brad Wiegand, John Larkin, jumped in semis and trucks, and we had a road crew out to Iowa. Once we got there, we had to set the tent up. Once we had the tent set up, then we had to power wash the top and the bottom. We put 20-hour days in all the way to Tuesday when the show started. When we got done at the show Thursday afternoon, we tore down. We cleaned up. We loaded. We didn't get home till Saturday night. There's times I see today that people don't realize what was done to build the foundation. So when you talk about going with cedars and sprayers, I say, how much stick to itness do you have? Are you going to get turned down the second you have a little bit of a glitch? Oh, now it ain't going to work? Because that ain't what happened back then. What you do is more important than what you say. So I at times hesitate to say culture. Or we do hard things or some of those buzzwords. Mm-hmm. I can't say I'm going to do hard things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sometimes we say it and it makes us feel good. But are we doing it? So I, I get nervous when we talk, you know, we, when we say, wow, our culture is great. <sighs> Be careful. Hopefully the culture isn't cockiness or arrogance, right? Are we leading by example on culture? on doing hard things, on giving more than we take. If you are that person, if we collectively are that company, it's a magnet. And we each make a part of what that magnet looks like. Or does it attract or does it repel? We have, you know, the stories of of working, of doing extra, of going hard for the farmer. There was days that I remember times where we'd have a farmer that was down in the field and couldn't go. And one of us would leave late at night, drive all night long, and get there and work with that farmer that next day and go two days, three days, two, two and a half days straight without sleeping, but we'd get the farmer going. We'd help the dealer out, right? That drive was there 20 years ago. It is here today as well. It happens. Sometimes we don't always realize it. You get calling dealers or you get calling region managers and sometimes product support, but each one of us have an opportunity once in a while to go after it, not drop the ball. Working that close and that hard with people, you build a lot of friendships. It gets It gets pretty deep as far as uh, the depth of relationships that you build and the the things that you'll do for dealers and for other RMs and what they'll do for you. That's something bigger. We have a lot of fun together, but we also work hard. The next journey, the next chapter is still to be written and we we all get to write a page.
0: Thank you for listening to the History of Precision Planting. As we are reminded of the unwavering commitment and unparalleled work ethic that laid the foundation for this company, may this encourage you to break new ground, dig deep, Forge lasting relationships that will cause you to go the extra mile for the farmer. At Precision Planting, we believe in better. So as we move forward, let's be better together.